Hello and welcome to another episode of Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. When I say think about a weird group of animals, what's the first species that comes to mind? Maybe in your mind's eye you saw an anteater, or bushjewel beetles, perhaps an eye-eye, or possibly even a shoebill stork. Nature has designed weird creatures filling all kinds of niches, and one group in particular is as odd as it is cute, armadillos. Yes, the half-mammal, half-turtle-looking creatures that you've probably heard of but might not know much about. And you might not be aware about how vitally important armadillos are for maintaining biodiversity in the Americas. To teach us about these cute and weird critters is Mariella Superina, DVM PhD, one of the world's leading armadillo researchers. Hailing from Switzerland, Mariella's life was forever changed when she traveled to Brazil at 18 years old. While there, the farm's cowboys showed her her first armadillo, and from that moment on, she was obsessed. She returned to Europe wanting to consume everything she could about armadillos, but quickly realized very little was known about them. She later became a veterinarian and also received her doctorate on this funky group of mammals. Mary Ella and I chat about many topics, including all things armadillos, conservation issues and solutions that she's developed in South America, how she blended multiple disciplines to research this group, and the opportunities and downfalls of setting such little-known animals. Mariella exudes passion, and I enjoyed every second of her talk. Get ready to learn more than you ever thought possible about armadillos in between lots of laughs, stories, and a few serious moments. If you're enjoying this show and think a friend might enjoy it too, be sure to send them this episode. Sharing is the best way to help the show grow. Also, if you'd like to be some of the first to hear about new podcast shenanigans, head on over to rewildology.com and sign up for the monthly newsletter. Don't worry, fun emails only. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Mariella. Hi, Mariella. Thank you so much for coming on the Rewildology podcast. Oh my gosh, you are so much fun. And this conversation is just going to be a complete blast. I, I already know and I can already tell. So let's introduce you to everybody. Even though you're in Argentina, you are not from Argentina. So let's get the whole backstory. Where are you from and how in the world did you end up where you are? <laughs> Oh, good. Let's start with an easy question then. <laughs> okay, so my name is Mariella Superina, which sounds Italian, but I'm Swiss. Uh, so I grew up in Switzerland and some other countries. And well, uh, after finishing high school, I went to Brazil to work on a farm. And that's where I saw an armadillo which is a long story. If you want, we, can we need, we need, we need the whole the thing. We need, we need all you the need things. The whole thing. Okay. <laughs> so you have plenty of time, I guess. Oh yeah. I mean, I got my wine yeah. and my water. We are good. We're good. good. <laughs> so yes, I was working on a farm uh, in Brazil. And at some moment, the cowboys asked me to go tattoo hunting. I said, Oh yeah, cool. What are we hunting? He said, yeah, you'll see. So we walked around the whole night uh, looking for tattoo and uh, had lots of fun. And after about six hours of walking around, um, 
we went back and I hadn't seen any wild animals, but I mean, we had fun, we laughed a lot. And so when I, when we came back, I asked the guys to please show me a tattoo. So at least that I knew what I had been looking for all night. And so the next day they, they caught a nine banded armadillo and brought it to me. And I saw that animal and, and I had no idea that armadillos existed. So, you know, I was blown away by that animal and, and really that encounter changed my life because I saw that weird animal that looked like a living fossil and it, it was a mammal, but it had a shell like a turtle. So, you know, it's kind of very weird animal. So when I went back to Switzerland, I started looking for information about armadillos and, and actually I didn't find a lot. So uh, I started studying veterinary medicine in Zurich. And at some moment we had a course in zoo biology at Zurich Zoo, where we had to give talks about some animal species. Oh, I want to talk about armadillos. And my professor said, well, that's a little bit weird because everybody <laughs> talks about, you know, tigers, lions, um, European wolves. And I said, no, but I want to talk about armadillos. So I... Uh, delved into all the literature they had at that wonderful um, library at Zurich Zoo. They had books in Spanish and Portuguese that I guess nobody had ever read. <laughs> so, and then it was very funny because uh, I talked to the keepers. They had some screaming hairy armadillos. And they said, well, you know, they never emerge from their burrows. So you'll probably not see them the day that you're going to give that talk. And anyway, we stopped by and I, I stood in front of that enclosure. And that screaming hairy armadillo came out of its burrow and looked at us during all my talk. I mean, that, that was so weird, you know, <laughs> so unexpected. And it was kind of a sign, you know. Mm -hmm. And then my, uh, my professor offered me to um, write my doctoral thesis about these animals because he said, well, that he didn't know a lot about them and that my talk had really been interesting. So, yeah, I took that opportunity and uh, started working with armadillos, actually with lots of books and papers. Uh, because in Switzerland, there are no armadillos except at zoos because these are uh, American animals. They're actually the real Americans. If you want to talk about the real Americans, you have to talk about the armadillos. All their evolution took place in the Americas and they only exist in the Americas. So that's how we started with armadillos. And I wrote my thesis on the biology and maintenance of armadillos and I thought, well, these creatures... I need to investigate them a little bit more. And so I went to the US uh, and started a PhD in conservation biology at the University of New Orleans. And yeah, I decided to dedicate my life <laughs> to these little strange animals. And here I am. I mean, that was about 30 years ago when I started with armadillos and here I am still working studying armadillos, dedicating my life to the conservation of armadillos and also to, you know, bringing all the people together who are interested in armadillos and raising awareness for them and giving lots of talks at universities because there are still plenty of people who don't know that armadillos exist. And 
I mean, I feel for them because I, I had to go through that at some <laughs> moment, you know. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I would love to break down a little bit more of your story here. So how did you get to Brazil? This seems like such a pivotal moment in your history and your journey. And that's a pretty random destination. So how in the world did you end up working on a farm in Brazil? Tell me through that story. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's not the most common place to go when you're 18. But, you know, in, in Switzerland... Um, the guys usually do military service at 18, and so they miss the start of the university uh, year. So they travel, and usually they go to the U.S. And I say, well, you know, if they can travel, why shouldn't I be able to travel around? And I wasn't that interested in going to the U.S. I wanted to see something different. And my dad, uh, at some moment, had a boss uh, who... When he retired, bought a farm in Brazil. And so he once visited us in Switzerland and he told me about his farm. He said, oh, you should visit. And he invited me to go and see what a Brazilian farm looks like. And he said, oh, you, you love it. There are lots of horses and wild animals. And I have two sons that you, need, you have to meet. <laughs> and so my dad got a little bit jealous and he said, well, you know, I've known that guy for decades and he never invited me to his farm and so <laughs> he didn't want me to travel alone so he accompanied me and uh, we went to Brazil and uh, that was another pivotal moment in my life because uh, you know Switzerland is a beautiful country but it's very small and it's cold I don't like cold weather and I saw that that the nature and the vast plains and I was just amazed, you know, by, by the landscape and kind of by the freedom you have when you're outside in such a, a place, you know, where you're kilometers or miles away from the next city. And so uh, we traveled around a little bit and I really liked Brazil and my dad's uh, former boss uh, invited me to come back and spend some more time in Brazil. And so that's what I planned after finishing high school, before starting university. And so I had bought my ticket and uh, was ready to travel and, you know, spend three or four weeks in Brazil. And then about two months before I was about to travel, uh, he called me and said, hey, how's it going? How's the farm going? I said, oh, I sold it. I said, what? Oh, oh no. <laughs> you <did> what? <laughs> I said, yeah, uh, some guy came by helicopter, uh, landed on my farm and said, I want to buy that farm uh, as is with all the books and all the furniture and everything. And so he sold everything and moved to Florida. <laughs> and I said, well, well, <laughs> what am I going to do? I have a ticket. Where am I going? <laughs> what am I doing? I mean, that was the time, you know where there was no internet. Right. I mean, <laughs> kind of difficult to imagine that there was a life before internet and <laughs> cell phones, right? Yes. And, you know, an 18-year-old Swiss going to Brazil uh, by herself, that, that sounded a little bit strange in that time. But, well, it was to the help of some friends. You know, I met people, so I, I traveled to Brazil and 
I got from one place to the other and they ended up on a farm. Um, it was owned by German people who um, bred horses. So they needed somebody to train their horses. And yeah, I preferred actually the part of uh, cattle ranching. So, you know, I worked uh, with the cattle, with uh, the cowboys. And, and I really, I loved that. So in the end, I didn't spend three weeks in Brazil, but a whole year. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of liked it. <laughs> and I guess that's also why I ended up in South America. I mean, I, I really liked um, the people, the climate, the nature, and, you know, it, it, it's such an amazing place. So, yeah, at some moment I, I ended up here in, in Argentina. I mean, that's not a story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lots of stories. Yeah, I know, I like it's all. You have so many stories. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to get all into it. So then how'd you end up back in Zurich? So you went back and did you get your DVM or like your yeah. degree? Okay, okay. So you're a registered right. veterinarian. So you are like a... Yes. And yes. you uh, also went and got your PhD. Yes, I, I actually, uh, I studied veterinary medicine in Switzerland. To be a DVM, you need to write a doctoral thesis. Oh, okay, so thanks for clarifying. You, yeah, you get uh, your veterinary degree, and then if you want, you can get your doctoral degree. Uh, so that was also a little bit weird because I got my, my doctorate in, in veterinary medicine, and then I wanted to do a postdoc in the U.S., and yeah, that concept was a bit uh, complex because in the U.S. you get a DVM degree. So I want to do a postdoc and they say, well, why don't you first write a doctoral thesis? I say, well, I already have a dissertation. I say, well, no, but that's not a real dissertation. You should work on a PhD. So, okay. So a wonderful friend of mine, uh, Roberto Aguilar, started talking about uh, conservation biology. I had no idea what that was. And he said, well, you know, it's multidisciplinary and we need more veterinarians working in conservation biology because the veterinary medical part is fundamental. I mean, with all the diseases that can affect uh, wildlife. And I mean, in the end, uh, you also have conservation medicine, one health that combines uh, human health, animal health, environmental health, and you need veterinarians in that. So, you know, I thought, well, that's uh, interesting to, to learn more about uh, conservation biology. So he helped me look for uh, a PhD program in conservation biology in the United States where there would be at least one professor knowing what an armadillo is. <laughs> <laughs> Which that's wasn't helpful. easy. <laughs> yeah. But we found one in New Orleans. So that's how I got to New Orleans, and I, I truly enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, New Orleans is an amazing uh, city. And I had to fight a lot because um, everybody else in that PhD program uh, were uh, biologists. So they didn't get the idea of me working as a veterinarian in conservation biology. So they wanted to convert me into a biologist. And so it, it took me a while, you know, to, to find my way as a vet in, in conservation biology. But I think that that's also a very important part to, to talk about, you know, that it is multidisciplinary. So we need more people from, from other areas working in conservation biology. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I'm such a big advocate for in this podcast. I mean, every single person has a different story and a different right. background and what they're doing, but we are all conservationists. Like every single person that comes on here or that listens pretty much can label themselves as a conservationist, but how we do that is completely different. Completely different. I mean, yeah, you're you're my first DVM. Like, you're right. my first vet, technically. <laughs> and we're talking about armadillos, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm the first one who talks about armadillos in this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, th- I mean, that's also the fun part about uh, conservation biology, that it is multidisciplinary, that you have to work together in conservation. You know, you cannot do Amen. that by yourself. It's, it's, it won't work. So I, I really like that approach, you know, that, that it's really, it's teamwork. Always. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't agree more. Okay. 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 So now we are to New Orleans and Ooh. which at least it's not cold there at all. That's for free. Right. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have to worry about cold at all. Okay. So what did you end up studying for your PhD, I mean, obviously it was armadillo. So what was your, what, what did you like, what's the path that you went down? And is this when you got to Argentina or what is that transition? Because clearly you've been everywhere at this point. So <laughs> yeah. to Argentina yeah. and then, and what's that whole journey that got you there? Well, actually, um, I came to Argentina uh, because of a horse breed that is typical uh, of uh, South America, especially Argentina, Chile, Brazil, which are uh, Criollo horses. And um, while I was studying in Switzerland, I, I had good contacts in Uruguay and traveled to Uruguay to a farm uh, that belonged to a good friend of mine who bred horses. So at some moment, I, I was uh, doing an internship in Uruguay, and I said, well, I'm going to uh, an exposition, and an exhibit in, in Buenos Aires, where they would show the best Criollo horses. And that was right beside uh, Buenos Aires Zoo where I knew that uh, there was a veterinarian who had worked with armadillos. So, you know, I walked over and went to the zoo and said, well, I would like to talk to Juan Carlos Sassaroli. Uh, Say, yeah, who are you? I said, well, I'm Swiss and I am interested in armadillos. And of course, I mean, nobody believed that. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know. That was another of these funny stories, you know, that say, why, why are you interested in armadillos? <laughs> so, yeah, but anyway, afterwards, I, I did some graduate courses in, in Argentina about armadillos and saw practice. And at some moment, I came to Mendoza uh, to see practice at the zoo. And that's where I met my partner. I, I call him husband, although we're not married, but that's, I mean, you know, after 20 years uh, saying it's my boyfriend, it sounds kind of weird. Yeah. So um, we met bef- just before I was going to New Orleans. So when I traveled to New Orleans, um, I said hello to my advisor and said, I'm going to work with peaches in Mendoza. I said, what is a peachy and where is Mendoza? (laughs) Say, yeah, peachy are small armadillos that are endemic to Argentina and Chile, especially to Patagonia. And Mendoza is a beautiful city 
Uh, in Argentina, close to the Andes, where there are lots of armadillos, especially peaches. So that was my start <laughs> in New Orleans. So I did all my coursework there, but uh, I would travel to, to Argentina, to Mendoza, to do my field work. And then Katrina hit. Mm. You remember Hurricane Katrina? Mm -hmm. I mean, who couldn't remember Hurricane <laughs> Katrina? So the university was flooded. The whole city was flooded. The university shut down. And so they asked me to stay in Mendoza because I was just in Mendoza when Katrina hit. So, yeah, then I had to improvise a little bit. Uh, I did all my, I mean, I had planned to do all my field work here, but uh, I actually wanted to do all my lab analysis in, in the U.S. So then I had to start looking for labs in Argentina where I could do all my analysis. Um, and I did a little bit of everything, actually, to... Uh, for my PhD, uh, I wanted to collect as much information as possible about uh, this armadillo species uh, that would help develop conservation plans, assess their conservation status, etc. So, um, yeah, the good thing is that my, my husband is a ranger, so he would do road controls um, to uh, confiscate dead armadillos from poachers because oh, wow. they're hunted as a as a protein source and then i would <laughs> collect samples from these animals <laughs> so convenient relationship <laughs> yeah interesting teamwork right <laughs> so i yeah i did quite a few road controls and uh, had some interesting encounters with uh, poachers uh, so yeah i I did uh, research on the reproduction, on the physiology of peaches, on their diet, health status. And, you know, it was also interesting that there was a lot of things that I couldn't study in the field because uh, you go to the field and you see burrows and you don't know if the armadillo is inside that burrow or not. And you don't know how many armadillos are out there because you don't know if one armadillo digs a single burrow or use a several burrows so you cannot even count the number of, of burrows and extrapolate how many armadillos are out there and so at some moment I decided well I need to keep armadillos under controlled conditions to be able to do some more research on them so we were just building our house and I built uh, enclosures in my backyard <laughs> That's awesome. Um, why in my backyard? Because first I wanted to do that at the zoo and I was told that they wouldn't be able to guarantee that nobody would eat my study animals. Oh my God. <laughs> so, yeah. That's not what I thought that. you were going to say. <laughs> no, no, no. I, it wasn't, I, I didn't expect that answer either, you know, but um, armadillos are eaten. They are a delicacy, apparently. That's what people say. Uh, so, you know, I decided it would be um, too dangerous, maybe, for my study animals. Um, so I built these enclosures in my backyard, and that was in 2003, and I still keep armadillos in my backyard. So uh, that allowed me to study their reproduction. So I bred armadillos, peaches spe specifically. I did studies... Uh, on their physiology and uh, found out that they hibernate in the winter 
which is cool because this means that uh, we now know how they survive the harsh winters in Patagonia. And also we did then some, some experiments uh, that showed us that um, they can enter torpor, which is kind of a short version of hibernation. It's just less than 24 hours. So they lower their metabolic rate and their body temperature just for a couple of hours to save energy. And they do that more frequently and lower their metabolism and their body temperature even more when uh, they're subjected to environmental stress. Which brings us back to conservation medicine, right? Because this explained us a lot. So if we have, for example, an intense drought here in Mendoza, you won't see any armadillos outside their burrows. So first time I saw that, well, I was actually trying to find armadillos in the field and I, I wouldn't find them. And I thought, well, you know, nine months without a drop of rain, maybe they all died because they couldn't find any food, they couldn't find any water. So then it started raining and armadillos popped up everywhere. <laughs> so, so, well. so then thanks to these experiments uh, under control conditions, I knew that they had been just uh, in torpor, waiting for better times to come. So, you know, as sometimes we think that it's, uh, you know, we have to do field work and it's, it's great to do field work, but then you see that there are things that you cannot study in the field. And so doing uh, research at zoos or under control conditions in, in your backyard, for example, it can be extremely helpful also for conservation purposes. Yes. And I would absolutely love if you could explain a little further what exactly it is that you mean when using like veterinary medicine in your studies. How were you able to marry those two? If you could explain a little further for us, because maybe somebody might be more of the biologist side or maybe someone might be more of the education side. But how how did you like these seemingly separate fields, how did you put them together for your sp particular species? Well, um, just to give one practical example, uh, when I was in the field, uh, the locals would tell me, I mean, locals always have, you know, a huge amount of information because they live in the middle of nowhere and they, they observe their wildlife and they know changes. And you know, it's, it's really, uh, they're an amazing source of information. So uh, in several places, they would tell me that uh, peaches had disappeared. They, there had been local extinctions. And they said, well, it's always when we have intense rains in the summer. And they associated it with the beetle that also appeared during these heavy rains. You know, and they thought, well, it's associated to the armadillos eating these beetles. And they said, well, then they have uh, kind of uh, eruptions on their skin and they have abscesses and then they die. Hmm. And plus, they told me that you shouldn't eat one of these armadillos that have these abscesses because it's contagious. <laughs> That's always a strange part of talking to them. <laughs> but so, you know, I was intrigued by that. And... When I kept my armadillos here um, under control conditions, I mean, they're in open pens. They're exposed to 
rainfall to sunshine and, and they can dig their burrows. They have lots of, of sand to dig in. And there was especially a wet summer. And uh, they call that, in, in the field, they call that the peachy plague. Mm. And then I had some cases of um, skin uh, lesions, abscesses in my armadillo. So I started investigating that. And it's, it's really interesting because uh, these peaches are desert animals. They only live uh, on sandy grounds. Uh, in the middle of the desert where it's not raining a lot. We have about 300 millimeters of rain per year, so it's close to nothing. So they don't drink any water either because there are no water sources around. So when it rains a lot, it's like when you're uh, in a swimming pool for too long, you see that your whole skin gets kind of uh, soft. Now imagine this happens to an armadillo that lives and digs in sand, mm. which is very abrasive. So they have that softened skin that gets abraded by the, the sand. And in the sand, you always have bacteria that are opportunistic. They usually, they don't cause any problem. But in this case, you know, they find a wound that gets um, the whole sand obviously gets um, gets into that wound. And that's a, a perfect climate for these bacteria to grow. So that causes infection. And now we have the other problem that armadillos have lower body temperatures, so their immune system doesn't work very well. So this gets to abscesses and to septicemia and kills the armadillos. So this means that if you have more rainfall in summer, you have more humidity levels and you'll have that problem in these peaches. Now, look at climate change. Predictions for Mendoza, for example, are that we will have more intense summer rains, which would mean in this case that peaches would have higher incidence of this peachy plague that could kill them. So, you see, this it's all related because if you only think about climate change, you might not think about the disease that could be caused by that, but it's all related. So that's that's one of the issues. But you also have, you know, for example, uh, urban sprawl, you have uh, habitat fragmentation that changes the whole ecosystem, that changes the interactions between different species and between individuals of the same species. So then you you change the whole uh, network or that mini ecosystem of a pathogen that might not cause disease in an animal in normal uh, conditions. But now you stress that animal because you change its habitat, you reduce it. So if you have higher stress levels, your immune system will get affected. And so that's perfect for all these pathogens to grow and to cause disease. So then you could have a problem uh, caused by a disease that actually was caused by humans who changed all the habitat. So, you know, we talk about, for example, habitat change that is a problem, habitat fragmentation that is a problem for species, but very often we don't consider what this could uh, cause 
in terms of diseases. Mm. That's so interesting. Yeah, that that is not a normal topic that's brought up as a consequence of all of these, you know, anthropogenic changes that are going on caused by humans. I, right. Re- I rarely hear about disease other than the pandemic, you know. That's a whole different story. <laughs> right. Well, you know, <laughs> but now, well, you see the pandemic. I mean, where did it start? I mean, there are different theories about that, you know, but one of them is that it started in wet markets where... Um, there are lots of animals from different species that are brought together and they have different origins, you know, different areas of China and they are all brought together. And so now you have suddenly uh, different wildlife species that would never encounter each other in the wild that are all crammed together in a single place and they're highly stressed because highly. of the transport, because of... Uh, the environment they don't know because they're in crates or in cages or whatever. So, you know, that's, I mean, that's a perfect uh, place for spillover to occur. Spillover is uh, when a pathogen uh, is transmitted from one species to another, that could be from a wild species to a domestic species, or it could be to a human in the end. Right. So if you if you have all these cages uh, crammed together in a wet market and then also uh, they kill these animals, slaughter the animals, eviscerate them. So you also have contact with the blood. You have uh, sneezing animals, you have breathing animals, everything. So, I mean, that's that's a culture medium for new pathogens to emerge. Yeah. So. I mean, right now, because we're all, we all talk about the pandemic all the time, you know, um, it's important to, to consider uh, the effects that we're having. There are, there's also an example that I usually give at talks um, in the Amazon. I mean, the Amazon region is, you know, wilderness. Uh, there are lots of places where you cannot go unless you go by boat, but there's still, you know, there are areas that you that humans cannot access. Now, um, a couple of years ago, I don't remember when it was, they built a Transamazonica, which is a trans-Amazon trans highway. And if you look at satellite images, you see that perpendicular to that trans-Amazon highway, there are lots of smaller roads that have been opened. Because of course you have a road and people are looking for uh, survival, how to survive. They look for new opportunities. So they take that road and they establish themselves somewhere. And then they start, you know, logging and they have to keep cattle, for example. So they have an area where they cut down all the trees and they put their cattle there to graze. Now, in that area, uh, you once had wild animals. Now, you stress them because you cut down the trees, you change the whole microhabitat because now suddenly you have sunlight that comes to the soil and it reaches the soil. So uh, you have other humidity levels, you have other temperatures. So that's all stressful for the wild animals. And then you bring in cattle. And the cattle will have contact with the wildlife that is roaming there because... 
of course, they're still trying to, you know, survive in their area. So you have contact between, say, bats or wild deer that live in the area with a cattle. And the cattle have never had any contact with a certain virus that is commonly circulating in all the wild animals in that area. And so its immune system is not prepared to, to combat that, that virus. So then you have a cow that is infected. And then you have the rancher that gets in contact with the cow or that slaughters and eats the cow. And suddenly that virus gets to the humans. So, you know, that's all just because humans are, um, well, the human encroachment into wild habitats. And then, you know, people say, well, it's um, the wild animal's fault. No, it's our fault. We're getting there. We're changing everything, you know. We're changing all the interactions. And it's also, I mean, all that example in the animals is also a conservation issue because the cattle will also have parasites, for example, mm -hmm. that they could transmit to the wild animals. So then suddenly you have new uh, pathogens, new parasites uh, in the area that could infect wild animals and could also be a problem, you know, um, looking at the conservation of these wild animals. Yes, absolutely. Domestic everything, domestic ev <laughs> all the animals, as we've come right. to find as the human population grows and we get more and more and we breed more and more because we need to sustain this never-ending human population. It's just more of these things are going to happen and are going to develop. Yeah. It's just, it's a cycle. I mean, I, I hate to put this out there, but this is just the first pandemic. I mean, the opportunity is out there. There are so many humans that just by natural selection, a disease is going to be like, oh, look at all this opportunity. Because I have subjects, billions of them, just purely from a biological standpoint. Like this is literally just the first one. And I hope everybody realizes that. Look how many times in history there's all these big events, the plague, you know, Spanish flu, you know, all of these things. It's just a matter time and it happens a lot with yeah. you know wildlife as well as that we see swine flu um there's a lot i mean um right now like the tasmanian devil um disease that's happening that they're experiencing um right kittredge uh, uh the kittredge fungus with all of our amphibians i mean it's just gonna it's just gonna continue on it's just gonna continue on um so and it, it's getting it's getting worse i mean uh, there are some really great maps i think by the world health organization that shows all the emerging infectious diseases that have been mm. diagnosed all over the world and it's not just you know one place where they emerge right. it's everywhere right so um Epidemiologists have always warned about uh, a potential pandemic. So actually, yeah, we did. knew that this would happen. Right. And yeah, you know, maybe we will learn from our mistakes. Maybe not. <laughs> right. Kind of right. Difficult, but, right. But, you know, the fungus is, is also a very interesting story. I mean, that doesn't affect humans, but it affects wildlife in, in, a, in a tremendous way. I mean, this is uh, for sure, it's the pathogen that has caused the highest amount of conservation problems. Mm -hmm. And it is related to humans because uh, of the amphibian trade that right. has dispersed 
and also the fungus to other countries, to other continents. And, you know, now you, you hop on a, on a plane and you fly to the other end of the world in just a couple of hours. So, you know, this also helps spread uh, diseases because once you diagnose it, maybe it's already too late. Right. And it's already everywhere. Yeah, once you're actually seeing the symptoms, it's normally like, well, how long has this been here? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a perfect example, though. Yeah, so thank you for going through that with me. Because again, oh my gosh, this is why I just love sitting down with just such a diverse group of people. Because I don't <laughs> see things in, in that disease sense. I see things from like a more like a biology sense. And so that is right. a perfect example. And let's go back to your armadillos. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can guarantee almost 100% that everybody listening doesn't know much about armadillos. And you've already given us a ton of facts. So, I would love if there is any other like armadillo 101 that you haven't already explained. Could you teach us a little bit more about these critters? You know, what they are, why they're okay. so cool, why they're so unique, maybe around how many species there are, where you find them, where you're in South America. But you know what I mean. Yeah, just like, okay. can you just like give us a lesson on what these things are? <laughs> <laughs> how much time do we have? I love talking about armadillos. So. I mean, I still got my wine, so as long as you want. <laughs> Be prepared. <laughs> Uh, okay, so armadillos, why are they cool? Well, they're actually, they're literally cool. So let's start by that. Love it. Um, they have a lower body temperature that, uh, than other mammals, and it's actually quite variable. So in peaches I've studied, I've found some um, completely active and healthy animals that had a body temperature of 32 degrees and others of 38 really? And I mean, wow. humans are about that 36 and a half, just for people who don't know what I'm talking about. So it, it's highly variable. Now, um, some researchers call that uh, primitive and they're not able to um, maintain their body temperature at a stable level. And I think actually it's a very clever adaptation. I mean, reptiles have that, right? Right. They... They have a variable body temperature. So some people say that uh, armadillos have kind of reptilian features because of that. But now think about it. Armadillos, um, their ancestors, they uh, fed mainly on insects. And the majority of armadillos still eat insects. Um, Talking about which, uh, anteaters and sloths are their closest relatives, which is also very cool. But we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> so they mainly eat insects. Um, think about uh, the size of an insect. How much energy can uh, an individual uh, ant contain? I mean, nothing. So if you had to eat enough insects to... Um, supply your requirements, your energy requirements, you'd be eating 24 hours a day. And probably that wouldn't be enough, right? So there are several adaptations in the anatomy and the physiology of armadillos um, that have evolved over millions of years. For example, um, they don't um, capture every individual 
and because that would take too long. And then they don't chew them because also they would lose a lot of time with that. So they have a, a very sticky saliva. They have a very long tongue. So they lick up these ants. Like they just eaters. get, like, you know, bloop, bloop, bloop. right, exactly. <laughs> so then they effects. swallow them. <laughs> yeah, we need sound effects here. <laughs> Because that's exactly what they do. Okay. Oh, keep going. <laughs> so uh, they swallow them so that they don't waste time chewing them, which means that uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to have, uh, to develop um, very sophisticated teeth, right? Because this also takes energy. So over time, over millions of years, uh, their teeth got very simple and they all look the same. And I mean, the most extreme example are the anteaters that don't have any teeth, right? So, uh, but still, that, that still isn't enough for them. They adapt to all that by reducing their energy requirements. Mm. So they have a metabolic rate that is about 40% of what you would expect for their size. So wow. they just, you know, everything is a little bit slower in the case of armadillos. But this also means that they generate less body heat. And so that's why their body temperature is lower. Now, why would they waste energy um, just to maintain their body temperature at a high level? I mean, that also, that would require more ants and they don't have time for that. So... Uh, their whole requirements are lower, their body temperature is lower, and now when they're active, this generates you know, muscular heat and their body temperature increases. When they're outside and it's very hot, their body temperature increases and they don't bother reducing it. They, they don't bother increasing it when it's cold. They just have, they cope with it uh, in other ways. For example, by digging burrows. That's why armadillos need burrows. So when it's uh, extremely hot or extremely cold, they will hide in their burrows and the depth of the burrow will depend on the ambient temperature. So uh, actually on the amplitude of the ambient temperature, they will uh, dig as deep as necessary so that they have a stable environment in their burrow. So that's all very clever, you know, so right. that uh, they, don't, they don't waste energy. Why waste energy if you don't have to? Because this means that you have to eat more. <laughs> Who has time for that, I like mean, you said? <laughs> right, and they can't eat chocolate like I would do it. I need to eat more. <laughs> so, um, so that's uh, why armadillos are cool. But this also means that they are more common in tropical and subtropical areas where the, body, uh, where the environmental temperature is more or less stable. So that they don't have to cope with, you know, huge temperature changes. Now, you do find armadillos, for example, in Argentina, in Patagonia, where you have, you know, very cold winters. And interestingly, the species that we have in the southern cone down here, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, uh, they not only feed on insects, but they also ingest other uh, kinds of food like vertebrates, carrion, which gives them much more energy. Oh, really? Really? So are their teeth different so, then? Are they like they're actively hunting? No. No. Oh, wow. No. They, are they still well, slurp them? They, <laughs> slurp. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's it's very interesting because you 
uh, I've analyzed stomach samples, uh, stomach contents of hunted poached peaches and found entire lizard, entire scorpions in there. I have no idea how they slurped them down, but you know, it's, it's very... It's very interesting. I mean, it's it's great because it's easier to identify than their prey. But I don't know how they how they catch them. I mean, I guess they're very patient. Probably they also, you know, uh, catch animals that enter their burrows, for example. Oh, so maybe like more so, opportunistic kind of thing. It's like, right. oh, you happen to be here and I know you're edible. So I'm just yeah. going to chomp down. Well, cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> But there's one species, the large hairy armadillo, that eats carrion. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you have a dead animal somewhere in the field, you will find burrows just below uh, that carcass. It's oh, kind wow. of, you know, McDonald's. McDonald's <laughs> for large hairy armadillos, you know. You just have to get out of your burrow and you have your food there. I mean, that's <laughs> very handy. So uh, that's how they cope, you know, with uh, the fact that they have a low metabolism, but here it's colder. So they need more, more uh, energy so that they can maintain at least a minimum temperature. So that's one of the very unusual things. Then you have in reproduction, for example, nine-banded armadillos, they always give birth to four identical twins. So they're Whoa. genetically identical. And then there's one species, the southern long-nosed armadillo. They also have these huge names. The southern long-nosed armadillo called Dazipus hybridus, or hybridus, it has 8 to 12 offspring per litter, and they're genetically identical. Isn't that cool? What? I mean, they're genetically <laughs> identical? What? <laughs> but, you know, if you look at them, they, they have, uh, morphologically, they can differ a little bit. But they're genetically identical. So you have either eight female offspring or you have eight male offspring in one litter. Do you know what the advantage would be of that for them to be genetically identical? Uh, that's, that's something that a lot of people have tried to elucidate. I mean, one hand, you see, you have uh, nine banded armadillos in southern U.S., so they appeared for the first time in the 19th century. Uh, So that was a natural invasion from Central America. Now, imagine you have two pregnant females that uh, come to a new area. One has a litter of four males and the other one has a litter of four females. You already have a small population. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to colonize new areas, that's amazing. It's an amazing way. Um, And there have been several theories investigating, for example, altruism. That, you know, maybe one of these offspring or that that four offspring would stay uh, close to each other so that, you know, one could sacrifice itself so that the others, the siblings would survive so that the genes would survive. Mm. But uh, Jim Loffrey and Colleen McDonough at Valdosa State University did a lot of amazing studies about that. They did ecological studies about, about armadillos, non-banded armadillos, and and they they showed that this is not the reason. So, you know, maybe it's just something went wrong in evolution. <laughs> <laughs> One of these strange things that... It's still working, I guess. It's still so like, working. I mean, is it hard for but, them to find mates? It's just like, you know, what, what would that... 
what would that be? Like, what is the benefit of that? But yeah, right. keep going. <laughs> it's, it's it's really strange because you only find that in one genus of armadillos, in Dasypus armadillos, and the others don't have that. Oh. Other species, so we, have, we currently recognize 22 species of armadillos. So uh, some species only have one offspring per litter. Others have two or three maximum. Uh, and then you have Dasypus uh, that have these uh, quadruplets and, and strange things. So you only have this polyembryony, uh, the genetically identical offspring, in the genus Dasypus. And they can also delay implantation, which is also a very cool mm. thing. So usually, you know, you have fertilization and then blastocyst implants in the uterus and starts growing uh, to a fetus. Now, um, they delay implantation so that the fetus doesn't start growing. Um, and that's a very smart way to ensure that your offspring will be born in better times, in good times where there's abundant food and etc. and good environmental conditions. Now, the strange thing is that in non-banded armadillos, when you stress them just at the time of implantation, they just delay implantation for another year. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> yeah, and I think there have been some cases where implantation has been delayed for two years. So that female hasn't been in contact with any male for two years. So the only explanation was that... Uh, she was holding already... on to that sperm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep so it it's safe. Really, you know, <laughs> amazing things in armadillos that nobody knows about. Then what else? Well, anatomically, what, what I was so amazed about is that they have a carapace. The carapace consists of tiny little um, bones that grow inside the skin. Oh, I didn't know they and were so bones. Then yeah, they're made of bones. Wow. But uh, they don't join completely. So it's not, you know, you have not like a turtle where the whole carapace is rigid, but uh, it forms different shields. So you have a scapular shield, you have a pelvic shield, and then you have a variable number of bands in the middle. And that gives them a lot of flexibility. So if you touch a nine-banded armadillo, it will be kind of leathery, but it has these tiny little bones inside the skin. It also has a shield on the head, which is very practical because they have to dig. Mm. So they start digging with the head and this prevents them from having injuries from, you know, stones and digging, abrasion, stuff like that. So, um, And the number of bands varies from one species to the other, but also um, it can vary within a species. And then you have two very cool species, the three-banded armadillos that roll up into a ball. Mm. So that's one of the concepts that some people think that all armadillos can roll up into a ball, but it's only two of these 22 species. And so they're, they're round and only have three bands. And then they have a triangular head shield and a triangular shield on the tail. So when they roll up, these two shields come together and they close up that ball. And it's impossible to open it. <laughs> so the predator cannot open that perfect ball. Wow. And it's it's very interesting because usually, you know, when they they feel scared, they... They close up 
but they just leave a little space, a small space open, so that the predator or the human puts a finger in it, and then they close up. And I can tell you from experience that this hurts. (laughs) (laughs) And you cannot open that ball. (laughs) So uh, it's really, you know, you have all these adaptations that are amazing and they're so different. And, you know, you think about the armadillo, but actually you have 22 species that are adapted to different environments that they have different morphologies they have different physiologies so you know you cannot talk about the armadillo because they're also different you even have the pink fairy armadillo oh my gosh yes please talk um, about these i had to look them up after last time we chatted i had to google these things i was like what are you talking about they are the cutest freaking things on this planet i can't believe they're real but they are okay so (laughs) If uh, somebody is listening to us and has no idea what we're talking about, imagine a piece of sushi because (laughs) it looks like a piece of salmon on top of uh, the rice, the sushi rice. That is perfect description. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody knows what sushi looks like now, but not what a pink fairy armadillo looks like. And, you know... Fairy sounds as if they came out of a fairy tale. And uh, yeah, they're about as rare as fairies, actually. But fairy comes from a fair, from small or little, because uh, they're about the size of the palm of my hand. They're about 100 grams. Um, They're pink. Pink fairy armadillos, yeah, they're pink. So, uh, but also the carapace color varies according to ambient temperature so they use that to thermoregulate and in all the other armadillos the carapace is completely attached to the armadillo and in pink fairy armadillos the both sides are loose and the whole body is covered with silky fine white hair so that makes it even stranger (laughs) but you know You have such a small animal that has a large surface in relation to its volume. So it loses a lot of heat, which is why it has that silky hair that protects it from the cold. And then that carapace is attached uh, to the body by a very thin membrane that uh, is extremely irrigated. So it has veins and arteries going through that. They go to the carapace. So when it's very hot, uh, you'll see a pinker color of that carapace because it has vasodilation. Whereas it has a vasoconstriction, so all the veins are constricted uh, so that there is less blood in the carapace when it's cold, so that all the blood gets concentrated in body. But then there's all other very odd things about pink fairy armadillos because they have a butt shield which sounds cool, right? (laughs) So at their rear end, they have a vertical plate, a shield, and they use that to compact the soil. So they dig and then they back up and (laughs) compact the soil behind them. So that's called backfilling. This means that when (laughs) when they're digging, so they back up and compact that soil so that they have some space in front of them that they can explore look for insects, they can breathe, which is cool, right? They have to breathe at some moment, right. which is not a topic we can talk about for an hour. 
how how do armadillos breathe under uh, well in the soil but so they back up and and they backfill their their burrows and also they have uh, the tip of their tail is uh, diamond shaped and they use it as a fifth leg so that they can stand up on their back feet and their hind feet and on the tip of the tail so it it's kind of a tripod so they can free their front legs and with their huge claws they can dig much which much more strength so that's pink fairy armadillo and their front claws are so large that they can only walk on the tip of their toes <laughs> yeah i saw that in the pictures seriously anybody listening if you are not driving please <laughs> google a pink fairy armadillo right now and i mean seriously last time we sat down and talked and you told me about these things literally no idea that they freaking existed and i had to google them immediately when we hung up and i'm like oh my god so yes please you will thank us go do a google search there's not many photos of them even on google they're so rare actually Actually, if you Google them, you see a picture of a hand with a pink fairy armadillo. That's my hand. So if you can't see me, at least you'll know my hand. So, I mean, that's a start. You'll know my hand. Uh, Yeah. So can you imagine that I've been living in Mendoza for over 20 years? That's pink fairy armadillo habitat. They only live in Argentina, only in dry areas, only on sandy grounds. That have never seen a pink fairy armadillo in the wild. Amazing. It, it is. It's incredible. But these little creatures, they live underground. And so they dig around all the time. And they emerge and they walk for five meters. And then they dig into the soil again. And nobody can track them. Nobody can find them. So we depend, to study them, we depend on the locals who find them, don't know what it is or know that there's a crazy Swiss researcher out there who's looking for pink fairy armadillos, so they call us. And that's how we get information about pink fairy armadillos right now. Uh, because uh, you cannot keep them in captive conditions. They die after eight days. Wow, it's so fast. Um, so they're extremely susceptible to environmental, uh, well, to temperature changes, to stress. They're very picky eaters. So at some moment here, the, the authorities, the environmental authorities, asked me to keep one to learn more about them so that we could save other rescues, you know, and, and release them. And I had pink fairy armadillos uh, in my living room. Yeah, we're, we're kind of the crazy people around here in my neighborhood. You know, we have, we have armadillos in the backyard. We have sheep. <laughs> we have dogs, which is normal. But then I had a pink fairy armadillo living in my in my living room in a terrarium, <laughs> and it survived for eight months, and it drove me crazy. <laughs> that little animal. I mean, it it weighed eighty grams when it arrived here, and it drove me crazy because uh, I tried out thirty six different ingredients to see what 36? that little guy. Yeah, would eat. I mean, you know, I rehab peaches for the authorities. So, you know, I have my little tricks, you know, how to get an armadillo to eat something. I tried everything. I went to the desert. I started 
collecting wild fruit and insects. And no, it wouldn't eat anything. I, I bred <laughs> some insects here at home. It wouldn't eat it. So I was so desperate and I was just hand rearing a large hairy armadillo that was weaning. So I had a mixture of milk with uh, cat food and whatever and banana. So I said, well, I'll try with that. And that's what it ate. <laughs> that's hilarious. And so little Kirko, that was its name, it would only eat its mixture and it I would prepare it for two weeks and had it in the fridge and I had to put an entire banana in it. If I only used half a banana, I wouldn't eat it. <laughs> if I used another brand of cat food and ground it, it wouldn't eat it. <laughs> and so little Kirko uh, wanted its food plate out there at 10 p.m. <laughs> and so uh, if it wasn't out there, it would freak out and run around and I would think, well, it's going to die of a heart attack. So our life was dominated by a pink fairy armadillo for eight months because we, my partner and I, we both work in the city of Mendoza. We would live uh, a bit outside. So, you know, sometimes we'd say, well, we could go for a beer. We would look at our watch and say, no, no. we have to go feed pink fairy armadillo. So... <laughs> what an influence such a tiny little animal can have on your life <laughs> you know so yeah <laughs> oh, it's like you're raising like an infant or something it's like this yeah. little thing that fits in your hand you can't even go out for beers you want to go feed the baby <laughs> so oh, yeah and it was funny because uh, there was an international mammalogy congress in mendoza at that time so I had several friends, armadillo researchers, who were obsessed with seeing that pink fairy armadillo. And they would sit in my living room. They would sleep here at my house. And so they would sit in my living room waiting for that pink fairy armadillo to come out of its burrow. And it wouldn't. It would stay there until 1 a.m., 1.30. And it would look at, I would look at them and say, it won't come out as long as you're sitting here. I said, no, I'll wait. They won't fall asleep. And I had infrared cameras uh, monitoring the animals. So every time somebody would fall asleep or give up, 20 minutes later, a pig fairy armadillo would emerge. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> you know, it's crazy little animal. It drove us crazy. But, I mean, it's, it's an amazing experience. You know, you learn so much from, from that. I mean, I had a recipe. I knew that what pink fairy armadillos eat. So when I rescued another pink fairy armadillo, I started mixing and putting the whole banana and the pink fairy armadillo wouldn't eat that. It was only interested in larvae. So apparently they have very individual food preferences, which obviously makes things much more difficult, but we're getting there, we're getting there. We're now trying to a radio track pink fairy armadillos. So we have tiny radio transmitters that we're attached to them. We are now just waiting for a pink fairy armadillo to volunteer for that. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, my gosh. Okay, okay. I think the next logical thing then. Thank you for that. Thank you for taking us in this insanely deep dive on Armadillo 101, especially the adorable pink fairy. So everyone definitely look that up. 
what would you say then? So let's talk about their conservation. What would you say then are some of their biggest threats that you've come to find? And how are you and your team tackling this? Because it sounds like we know so little. And you mean, you've been studying them for so many years. And I'm sure that you've come up with so many things. But I mean, the clock is ticking. So in your experience, what's going on with them from a conservation standpoint? Okay, well, here's the first problem. Um, I'm the chair of the IUCN, SSCN, Tito Slotten Armadillo Specialist Group. So um, I'm one of the responsibles for the assessments, the red list assessments of, of all uh, Xenarchans, so anteater sloths and armadillos. And so out of the 21 species that we had um, assessed in 2013, five were data deficient, which means that we don't even have enough information about them to assess whether they are endangered or not. So that's not a good sign, right? No. Then we have other species that are considered least concern just because they have a wide area of distribution, but actually we don't know anything about their populations. And one of these species, in the meanwhile, um, has been uh, analyzed in more depth and actually was a species complex and is, consists of three different species. So now instead of one species that was considered least concerned, we have three species of which we don't know yet if they are threatened or not because we haven't assessed them yet. Uh, so uh, it's also very difficult because uh, these three species only live in the Amazon and Orinoco regions um, in Northern South America. They are nocturnal. They only live in forests. So the only information we have about them is actually from camera traps. And not many people do camera trapping uh, in the Amazon. Mm. So we don't know about them. So it's very difficult also to assess uh, what is affecting them because we don't even know where they are. <laughs> so that, that makes things a little bit more complicated. Uh, in other cases, like the Brazilian three-banded armadillo, we know that uh, it is endangered due to habitat loss and due to hunting. Um, hunting has been part of the South American culture for hundreds of years. I mean, subsistence hunting is, you know, what, what people have been doing around here. And you understand that, you know, if you live in the middle of nowhere and you have to eat, well, you'll have to hunt. And traditionally, people know, uh, the locals know, you know, when to hunt the species, when females are pregnant and you shouldn't uh, hunt them, etc. But all this traditional knowledge um, is getting lost. And you have, for example, here in Mendoza, you have the locals who know about that. But then you have people from the cities who think it's fun to go, you know, armadillo hunting over the weekend and to take a lot of wine with them and hunting dogs. And they kill all the armadillos they can find. Mm. So sometimes uh, we've confiscated 50 armadillos from a single truck. 50 from one truck from one truck and you had you know females you had juveniles and in the case of females uh, due to my research uh, here in, in my enclosures 
We know that the offspring remain inside the burrow for 40 days during the whole lactation period and they don't emerge. So if a poacher kills a lactating female, which is obviously very active because it has to eat a lot to produce all that, that milk, it also kills the offspring. Mm. So killing a lactating female actually has an impact of three dead animals uh, in the wild population. And we also, we are working with environmental authorities here to assess such things and increase the fines in case, for example, they, they kill the lactating or a pregnant female. But uh, I mean, that's a problem in all of Latin America. And you have also a, a change from a subsistence to commercial hunting going mm. on in some areas. So, for example, uh, since 2012, uh, we've had a conservation program for armadillos in the Llanos of Colombia, so in the whole eastern floodplains of Colombia. And we've assessed, for example, uh, the main threats to the armadillos in that area. There are five armadillo species living there. And one of them is that cultural change. So the locals know when to hunt, which animals to hunt, etc. But now you have the whole agro-industrial development in that area where um, you have oil extraction, you have rice fields, timber plantations, etc. And they need a lot of human resources. So they bring workers from the cities, from big cities, to these rural areas. And they don't know the local traditions, they have no idea about wildlife. But they have more money than the locals, so they want to, you know, try something different. So they go to the local restaurant and say, well, I want to eat wild meat. What can you offer? And so they start offering armadillo meat, tapir meat, capybara meat, etc., which is illegal. Mm. But there's a market for it. And so they find hunters who start hunting in a non-sustainable um, at non-sustainable levels, which is the whole problem then because that affects the wild populations. So, f- for example, that's something we've identified specifically in, in that area of Colombia and we're trying to find ways uh, to reduce uh, the commercial hunting and especially the restaurants that are offering that illegally. Uh, and I mean, it's prohibited, but you can't just, you know, do law enforcement because these people need to survive and they will always find a way. So what we are doing is uh, we're offering courses to these restaurants uh, to show them how to increase their revenues without having to incur into illegal activities. For example, you know, uh, food handling and uh, economy and stuff like that. And uh, they can adhere to our program, to our label, which is called Restaurants Free of Wild Meat. So then we give them placemats and information about armadillos. We train them so they then multiply that conservation message when they talk to their consumers. And uh, we promote these restaurants uh, through the internet, through the tourist office, etc. So that's how we try to reduce that. And... We've seen that this really helps because the authorities have confiscated less armadillos over the past few years uh, than before 
whereas the other animal species are still confiscated at similar levels. So um, that's one of the ways that we're trying to, to work on that. Uh, because that's also a, an issue about conservation biology. You know, uh, We need to be realistic and think about the human as part of the ecosystem. You know, it's not realistic just to, for example, uh, say we'll protect uh, the whole Orinoco region, make a huge protected area so that wildlife will thrive and we won't have extinction. I mean, that's simply not realistic. You cannot halt the, the development of country uh, for conservation reasons. I mean, uh, that would be cool, right? That would be amazing, but it's just not realistic. This will not work. So um, if you have um, an industrial, agro-industrial development, it's better to work with, uh, for example, in this case, oil palm plantations. We're working with oil palm plantations in the Llanos, uh, which do not deforest. There's no deforestation going on. They use uh, the savannas to plant their palms. So it's an extremely different, completely different situation uh, to that in Asia where things have been really horrific. They've been everything wiped out with all the conservation uh, impacts. But now in the Llanos, what you, you have is people who are committed to conservation. They plant the oil palms, but now we're working with them to assess which management practices are more beneficial to armadillos. Remember I told you that they eat insects. Mm -hmm. Insects are pests to plantations. So if uh, you can get armadillos to live in these plantations, they will eat all these insects. So on one hand, it's a benefit for the armadillos, but also you will need to spray these plantations less to kill the insects, which is an economical benefit. And also, if you have armadillo-friendly plantations, it means that you can certify your product and you can sell it on the international market as an eco-friendly product. So that's the approach that we're trying to do uh, so that we can uh, work with plantations. And we've seen there's huge interest in doing that, mm. in really trying to uh, save armadillos in these areas uh, and see how they can adjust their management practices to do that. So, you know, these are approaches that I think in conservation biology, we also have to consider. You know, humans will continue impacting the environment. So let's try to work together, find ways uh, that are beneficial for both sides. Right. And I, gosh, I love that you bring that up because I hate where there's so much. And I used to think this way as well. So I don't want this to come off the wrong way because I used to think this as well. That, like, it was so us versus them, meaning, like, humans versus nature, and that if we're encroaching on nature, then we're doing something wrong. And it's like, that's not, that's not, that's not what this is. Like, we are just as much a part of nature. We have separated ourselves. And we have no right to tell someone that they cannot pursue the best life that they can for them and their family simply right. because of nature. Like, that's not, like, that's not fair. Like, that's not okay. 
And I mean, I can't imagine if I, you know, had a family of my own and someone tried to tell me that I could not give my child the best life it could because X, Y, or Z, conservation, whatever, whatever, whatever. Like, what? We have to humanize this sometimes. And I think that's like that line. I mean, I think right. it's, it's getting a lot better now. I really do think as we're getting more and more into engaging all stakeholders, talking with local communities, all of these other things that we're, we're starting to do now, that that's not near as prevalent as it used to be. But recognizing that and talking with these people and like, what can we do together? My goal is to save armadillos. Your goal is to have the most profitable plantation as possible. Where can we meet in the middle? <laughs> you know, like, let's right, work exactly. together. Let's work together. And and how, how did you do that? So, I mean, you are a Swiss woman, which I'm sure there's so many layers to that that we can go into in a second, which we will. Um, but how, how did you go about this? So you're like, now this armadillo expert, which that's so how, one, how'd you even do that? Like, how did you just become an armadillo expert? And then how did you start working with these communities to start saving the armadillos? I mean, there's, I just ask you like five questions and I apologize for that, but yeah, yeah just put however you want to answer. <laughs> well, you know, going back to the same thing I said, it's teamwork. We're a team. I could not do that by myself. Now, um, we're talking about armadillos, right? I mean, it would be much easier to do that for jaguars because mm -hmm. everybody thinks, oh, jaguars are, you know, sexy animals and charismatic animals. And now we're talking about armadillos that nobody even thinks about. But, you know, if you have the passion and the enthusiasm, you can, you can reach a lot even for strange and odd looking species like armadillos and and i think that's the issue mm. you know we give huge amounts of talks um we go to universities and talk to students because you know it's kind of a vicious circle you know there are not many uh, armadillo researchers out there but what's the issue uh, you have undergraduate students who need to write their undergraduate thesis so they need to look for a professor who is going to advise them and professors don't work with armadillos, so they will not incentivate them uh, to, to do their undergraduate thesis on armadillos. They, they, they never hear about armadillos, so it doesn't even occur to them. So you have to start working with these undergraduate students and, and tell them and, and show them how fascinating these armadillos are and all the unusual things and all the stuff that you don't know yet about them. Uh, and it's all publishable if you think about you know, the research part. Right. It's, it, there's a lot of publishable stuff that you can study, which is attractive for researchers. So then you start uh, motivating them. You offer them uh, to be their advisor. I have been undergraduate advisor for several students in Colombia, you know, just to get them started so that at some moment, you know, they get independent now. Uh, we have one of my former undergraduate students is in our team uh, as a biologist. He's doing now his master's thesis on armadillos. So, you know, we're pushing him to be the armadillo specialist in Colombia. Mm. No, because we need somebody who, who pursues that research because I cannot be, you know, forever traveling to Colombia uh, to do the research. 
Right. You know, I need to, to get human resources out there who are interested and, and who know about armadillos and how to study them. So that's one of the issues. But then also you need to talk to the locals. You know, so we've published plenty of books, uh, coloring books for the children. Uh, we've gone to schools to talk about armadillos to involve them in all our projects. So um, directly, I think we've reached 50,000 persons with our uh, talks. And we also have a a permanent exhibit at a local zoo that works, that has been working with with our project. And so um, considering that they have a giant armadillo that we haven't talked about yet, about that species, uh, but you know it's the attraction, so uh, we estimate that about five hundred thousand people, half a million people, have seen the exhibit and have learned about armadillos at that zoo. So that's how you slowly start changing things. You have to talk to the authorities, which is a completely different language. <laughs> yeah. So you know it's it, it's totally different. If you have to talk to a politician or to a local or to a kid. So, you know, you, you need to change your language, your message and everything and see you know, how do you involve them. I mean, then you have the other stakeholders. You have plantation owners uh, that you start working with them maybe um, on another topic, biodiversity. Mm. And then you start talking to them about armadillos or we have a network of farms uh, that is called Friends of the Armadillos. So these are private farms that uh, commit to not allowing commercial hunting on their lands. Mm. And so we go to farms and we talk to them about armadillos. And, you know, first they think it's kind of weird. <laughs> and then we, we train them uh, in... The use of camera traps and we install camera traps on their lands and we involve them so they see all the biodiversity they have and they get really caught up with that idea you know and then they start calling and say oh i saw a giant armadillo and send us pictures and stuff like that and so you really have to motivate people and you have to involve them so once they're involved it's 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 much easier you know to to get them really committed to that and so that's, that's a bit the, the way that we're working, especially in Colombia and that, that project that I, that has been running since 2012. And so it's always, you know, you have different aspects of a conservation project that you have to take care of. You know, you have to find out which the thre- uh, about the threats at the local level and address them. So there's not one recipe that you can use anywhere. I mean, what we've developed is a multi-institutional, multidisciplinary project um, that works very well in Colombia. Probably if we wanted to set up something like that in another country in South America, we'd have to adjust some parts because of cultural backgrounds, because of political issues, uh, because the laws are different, etc. So, you know, you always have to, to consider a lot of local uh, details, maybe, uh, to make your conservation project or your conservation plan work. 
Yeah. Right. And I'm sure you have stories from till the end of time <laughs> about that, I'm sure. And and on that, I would I would love to kind of change the lens right now and come back to you. So you've been doing this for a while and you've you're a pioneer in a sense where you're trying to just get these species on the world map and save them because they are really important. I mean, just like you said, biodiversity is just so important and they're really special. I mean, they're just special. They are such cool animals. So if you wouldn't mind maybe just sharing a little bit with whatever you're comfortable with, what has your journey actually been like? What Maybe what are some of the hard things that you've gone through in in your years that you would be willing to just share with all of us and trying to work on a a group of animals, not just a species, but a group of animals that aren't the charismatic species, that were little known, that you pretty much had to be a pioneer on. You're in a, you're Swiss, but you're in a literally a whole other continent. Like, I'm sure there's so many things to this. What would you be comfortable with? sharing that you've gone through maybe maybe some of the hard things too (laughs) (laughs) well i think if you're not working with a charismatic species one of the major issues is funding Mm -hmm. is to get funding to work with these species because everybody will be interested in funding a uh, study on primates or on elephants or whatever. So you get lots of funding for that. And armadillos, you know, people will look at you and say, why armadillos? Uh, so, I mean, it even happened to me during my PhD when I presented my, my projects. Um, I had one of our professors who said no. Which this, straight up this just said no? sense. <laughs> doesn't make sense oh my god he wanted me to change uh, study animals and work with a completely other taxa say no i am going to work with armadillos and he really he destroyed my project every time he could and he always ended up saying why don't you change your topic to something more realistic and say no i'm going to work with armadillos and i think that was a very difficult part, but I learned a lot from it. I kicked him out of my committee. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. Uh, I mean, I had two options. One was give up and abandon my PhD. The other was uh, insist in what I want to do and uh, get him out of my committee because he would never accept it. So if he's listening to that i'm very sorry about all i'm <laughs> saying but <laughs> um but i think that was that was one very difficult issue uh funding is still an issue uh, you don't get funding that easily uh, for armadillo research so for example then we started delving into the whole conservation medicine thing and public health issues so we're, we've started working on some pathogens specifically that can affect humans mm. um, and have been looking at that, which is easier to get funding for. And so indirectly, you can study um, armadillos, you know, other aspects of armadillos, but it's not ideal. 
So it takes a while to, you know, get the right funder. For example, for, for a conservation program in, in Colombia, we had a, a private company that started actually that project that just wanted to do um, conservation work with a species and uh, they, uh, Oleoducto de los Llanos, uh, they own the pipeline, an oil pipeline. And in Colombia, they have to dig ditches and bury the, the pipelines due to security reasons. So I said, well, armadillos, they also dig. So that would be a cool species to support. And that's how our program started. Uh, so that was really, that was just a crazy idea. But then, you know, we wanted to find other funders and it was extremely difficult to find somebody. Mm. And in 2020, we found uh, we talked to Fondation Segre, which is a private foundation in, in Switzerland, ironically in Switzerland. <laughs> and and we say, you know, we we are working conservation of armadillos. We have these ideas, and and they were extremely supportive of it. So you know, sometimes it's just you have to find the right partner, because we're extremely happy now with Fondation Segre that is supporting you know all the aspects of our program with the restaurants free of wild meat, with working with the plantations and and friends of the armadillos and doing research, etc. So, you know, it took us a while to find the right one. But uh, so that's, I think that was a, a very different, difficult part of doing the research. Um, also, I mean, it's it's not easy to do research on armadillos because you go to the field and you find burrows and, and you don't find your armadillos. I mean, you cannot use the traditional um, study methods mm. for armadillos because you cannot trap them. They don't enter traps. Um, we have very few population density data because of that. Um, radio transmitters is another issue. Where do you attach a radio transmitter? Right. Uh, to an armadillo because it, it gets peeled off if you put it on the carapace you can implant it but uh, they have not been good experience with that the transmitters were too large now the technology helps us a lot mm. so just in February we implanted transmitters into some armadillos in, in Colombia and yesterday my colleagues in Colombia uh, went out to the field uh, to catch more armadillos and implant transmitters so that we can you know, radio track them. But um, it's not easy you know, to, to study them. And so I guess that's also why there are not many armadillo specialists out there, yeah. armadillo researchers. We're just a handful of very crazy people. <laughs> but you know, that's, it's also the fun part of it. You know? We know each other. And it, it's great. I mean, the immense majority wants to work together. That's beautiful. So, you know, that's, that's a great part. I mean, I always think about, you know, if, if I were a primate researcher and there are thousands of other primate researchers, uh, there must be so much competition and you have to study all these tiny little details. Whereas armadillo researchers, you know, uh, we exchange ideas ex and... Um, experiences and students email us and say hey i want to do a trap study and said no forget it because of that and 
provide them alternatives. And, and you know, that's also, that's, it's a challenging part, but it's, it's very rewarding also, you know, that you can work together. Because in research, unfortunately, there's a lot of competition going on. <laughs> yes. Because so. like you said, funding is so few anymore. Well, not yeah. just anymore, just in general, as we need more and more answers and more and more researchers. It's just, yeah, it, it's like a doggy dog world right now. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's uh, that's a difficult part. Now, being a Swiss in South America, well, sometimes it's an advantage and sometimes a disadvantage. I mean, the advantage is that I'm the strange European <laughs> working with armadillos. I mean, it's ironic, right? That's a South American species. And uh, then you have to come from Europe to study them because nobody here studies them. It, it's, it's weird. And so, you know, they sometimes it's an advantage that they think you're the weird one. Um, but also, you know, sometimes it's difficult for me as a Swiss. I am very organized and very punctual and, you know, typical Swiss. And then you come to Latin America, nobody, nothing works like you expect it to work and you have to improvise much more. So that's sometimes a little bit challenging, maybe. So, I can see that. So, I would be the exact yeah. same way. Uh, every single time I've traveled yeah. anywhere else or I had some friends um, that have come to the U.S. for like their master's or something and they were like... <gasps> Oh my god! I had to figure out. I think like they were telling me stories about um, their first day at university, and they just kind of strolled in, not realizing <laughs> that start time. Like if you are on time, you are late. Like that concept just right. didn't exist <laughs> to them, and so it was a very rude awakening for them. But luckily, they said that they yeah. were grateful for their experiences because now they're so much more productive. And I'm like, well, right. that, that's a double-edged sword. There, yeah, there really is some benefits, and then there's like our just crazy workaholism. That's definitely a whole other conversation. But yeah, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> still. Yeah, so what would yeah, you say I mean, then on the other side then? What are you most proud of? Is there like one particular instance or maybe just the whole thing? Or like, what are you just like, man, this lights my fire and I'm so glad that I've done this or dedicated my life to this. Like, what is that thing? I'm very proud of our conservation program in Colombia. Mm. Really, really proud of it because uh, we're seeing the results and we see, you know, the enthusiasm and armadillos are getting recognized as flag flagship species in the llanos so people are really you know embracing the animal and that that's extremely rewarding because you see the results so that that's one of the things i'm, I'm really happy about proud of uh, also i work with an amazing team there so i couldn't be happier about that and i think that's also um one of the, the nice things about my job, as there are not many armadillo researchers out there, I travel a lot. Um, I couldn't, I mean, pandemic drove me crazy because I couldn't travel. So uh, usually, you know, in, in our institute, when I come back from a trip, they ask me, when are you going, where, where are you leaving again? Because I wouldn't spend more than three months in, in Mendoza. So now I have a graduate student in Chile who's working with armadillos. I have my master's student in Colombia. I had undergraduate students in Colombia. Uh, I provide advice to a researcher in Honduras. 
uh, work a lot with somebody in Costa Rica, uh, now via Zoom or something like that. But but still, you know, I, I travel a lot. Uh, I have great colleagues and friends in, in Brazil uh, with whom we're working together. So, you know, that's that's an amazing part of it. And I think that's that's what I like most about being an armadillo specialist, that I can exchange ideas and work with people from all over the place. I mean, even in Europe, I have our specialist group has members from France, a geneticist who's the specialist in uh, molecular analysis of, of armadillos plus anteaters, but we also have um, two zoo specialists who know much more about captive breeding. Mm. So uh, we also exchange a lot ideas a lot with them. So, you know, that that's a great part about it. We have people all over the place and um, providing advice to them is also extremely rewarding. Mm. Yeah, I mean, just the passion that's exuding from you. Like, it's so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> you love what you do. I love talking I to passionate people because that's, Let's be honest, it's like the only thing <laughs> that we have. It's like the only reason to do pretty much what we do is just the passion. Right. Because there's really not many other perks. <laughs> right. Oh. I mean, you know, sometimes you get frustrated because you, you cannot do what you want because funding is scarce. I mean, especially in Argentina, working as a researcher in Argentina is is frustrating because you don't get funding here. I mean, our grants are ridiculous and we have an inflation rate of about 50% per year. So 50%? Uh, 50%. So that eats up our grants. Yeah. So, you know, I I wrote my research uh, proposal, my grant proposal in 2019 and got the grant awarded last year. And it's a three-year grant. So what I had budgeted in 2019 is unrealistic right now because I don't have the money. So uh, that's that makes things extremely frustrating. And so that's, you know, the, the times you say, well, uh, maybe I should leave research because it's not what I, what I can do. I mean, I cannot do what I, I would like to because I don't have the funding and because it's so difficult because you have a lot of bureaucratic part, you know, all the, I mean... Think about being a researcher, you think about, yeah, I'll be in the field observing animals and catching animals. And yeah, nobody teaches you at university that you'll spend hours and hours in your office <laughs> writing grants and writing reports for your grants and writing reports for the institution you're working for. And so... I'm spending much more time in my office than in my lab or in my or in the field. And that's sometimes, you know, think, yeah, that's not what I wanted to do, but it's necessary. <laughs> right. So, it just comes with the territory. It's like this yeah. is the path I chose. There's perks <laughs> and there's some not perks. And that's <laughs> right. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so since you have just You've seen so much and you've experienced so much. If you could offer one piece of advice to anyone listening, and that could be anything, what would you like to share that you want someone to take away from this conversation? 
that you have to follow your, follow your dream. I mean, if you want to do something, um, insist and don't get, you know, don't, don't let anyone take you off your path that you want to follow. And if you are passionate enough, you know, to study the weirdest animal or plant, uh, do it. Um, I mean, it, it's not worth spending the rest of your life doing research on an organism that you're actually not passionate about because you get frustrated. And if you want to work in conservation of the weirdest animal, well, do it because nobody else is going to do it. And, and you know, that species depends on you. So I think that's, that's very important uh, in all that. You know, you need to follow your dreams and, and do what you're passionate about. It's mm. so beautiful. Yes, absolutely. I'm so, I'm such absolutely. a, I'm such like, we all have the thing that just lights our fire and like find what that thing is. And then once you have it, don't let go. Just freaking go for it because we need you. Like we right. need you doing that. We need more armadillo specialists. We need all these people from all different <laughs> yeah, backgrounds right. solving all of these issues. And they're only going to get worse. So the more people we have, following their dreams, following their passions, answering questions, the better. <laughs> but also, you know, be open to new experiences because I studied veterinary medicine because I knew since I was little that I wanted to be a vet. And I was finishing vet school and I was convinced that I was going to work with large animals, cattle. And then I, I, I saw that armadillo and that changed my whole life. You know, uh, so you have to be open for new new experiences, because otherwise, maybe now I would be working in Switzerland, uh, taking care of cattle yeah. as a vet. Yeah. And, and and look what that that weird encounter with an armadillo uh, made of my life. Right. It's amazing. See, I mean, you have to be yeah. You have to be open to to such experiences to to weird. Uh, casual things that uh, that unexpected things maybe uh, because they could be you know they could change your life they could be fundamental for for your path that's why I love travel that's why I'm just like oh, everybody yeah. <laughs> travel I mean that's what I do that's like that's the way I've dedicated myself to conservation is through travel and Seeing all right. these wild places, meeting amazing people, and helping people have these transformative experiences, and and I mean, I come from a very, very rural place that's very close-minded, and it's just amazing what just one trip away outside of your comfort zone can do, and and just like I me, mean, you were in Brazil, you were like, "What's a tattoo?" and it just happened to be an armadillo, right. and now look at your life, like, <laughs> can you imagine how that? Unexperienced, just, just that one little thing on a trip just completely changed your life. Such a fantastic example. Such a fantastic example. So I've taken up so much of your time. And Ooh, you've been no. absolutely I'm amazing. <laughs> I mean, me too, me too, me too. I'm just looking at the time. I'm like, oh my God, we're still talking. I mean, I could talk to you all night and we're definitely gonna have some wine in Mendoza. So oh, yes. talking about definitely. travel. Um, I've already invited myself and it's going to happen. But anyway, if somebody <laughs> wants to get in touch with you, what is the best way if they want to be like, Mariala, I have, I want to talk to you about X, Y, or Z. How can I get a hold of you? What would you like to share with people can get a hold of you? 
Well, first of all, if you want to learn more about armadillos, uh, our specialist group has a website uh, that has some basic information. Maybe you can post that because xenartrans.org uh, sounds a bit strange because that's a scientific name for armadillos lost and anteaters, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so um, you can find that. You can just Google Mariella Superina and you'll find our website. So you can contact me through that website if, if you're interested in knowing more about armadillos or about anteaters that we haven't talked about today or about sloth. They're also very cool. Um, so that will be a good way to start. I mean, there are scientific papers and I'm on Animal Planet and on Netflix and whatever. So you can also look me up somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, listen to this pop podcast again so that if you miss something, You'll get the I mean, we, we've talked a lot, so maybe, you know, you fell asleep in the middle and now you woke up just to the end of this podcast. So maybe you should rewind and, and listen to it again. So That's you know more about, about all that. <laughs> and of course, I always post all of this in the show notes at rewildology.com. So yes, everything cool. we talk about, I will make sure that all of those resources are there and and then maybe I can bring some people down with me and you can just take us to all the vineyards and we can just be half drunk talking about armadillos. It just makes it to me. <laughs> we have some amazing protected areas here in Mendoza that are worth visiting. One is Pajunia that you have to see. There are armadillos in there. So, I mean, it's a good excuse. You can <laughs> yeah. watch armadillos in Pajunia. Um, we can search for pink fairy armadillos, but you'll have to spend a couple of years here probably <laughs> until you see one. But I mean, that's an option too. <laughs> not, not out of the question for me. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, there's enough wine to survive that. So that that's a good uh, point here in Mendoza. I mean, there are some advantages of, of living here in Mendoza. Like there are over a thousand wineries oh my God, in Mendoza. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Marielle, you are amazing. Thank you again for spending your evening with me. And I can't wait to just get your welcome. story out there and teach everybody about armadillos and why they're so important. Great. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. So we can continue chatting about armadillos, about whatever you want, anytime. I'll be happy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.